Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to interview number 24 in our series of Meet the Education Researcher podcasts. My name is Neil Selwyn. I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And the aim of these interviews is simple. We spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by Iris Doon, an associate professor in the faculty. Good morning, Iris. Good morning, Neil. Really nice to be here. Thanks very much. Now, straight to business. You're part of a large team of researchers working in the area of early childhood. But I mean, beneath that umbrella term, what are you really interested in? What's your particular focus? Well, I've always been interested in the idea of childhood. So for me, it's about power relations. That's really where I come from. As a sociologist, I also have a little bit of a bend towards philosophy. And I've always been intrigued by the way in which society thinks about those big populations or categories like women or children or men or whatever category you'd like to pick up. And I felt that childhood in particular is very much um, an aspect of power relations within society that goes undetected quite often. Well, I was going to ask you, because you, you label yourself as working in critical childhood studies. The obvious question is, are childhood studies normally very uncritical? But I guess you're hinting that issues of power and these kind of ideas of social relations are not often talked about in relation to children. In early childhood education in particular, because it's a very strong field now, but it's a relatively new field. So there was a lot of groundwork to do around what education actually is for young children. So this idea of the child as a learner and looking critically at childhood as a concept has not been at the forefront, let's say, of scholarship in early childhood. So how do these ideas go down when you talk to other early childhood educators and early childhood researchers? Do they look at the, your interest as slightly kind of left field or is there becoming more acceptance of these issues? I think there's much more acceptance now. The field really has a strong focus now on critical engagement right, with right. lots of ideas. So it's not that left field anymore. I think when I started, it may have been. So 10 years ago, I looked at early childhood curriculum critically, and that was not a straightforward, easy thing to do at that point. But now there's actually a lot of scholarship that does that kind of work. So another thing that really interested me about your work was the very strong focus on place. Now, I guess it's very popular now to acknowledge place as a key concept in the social sciences. But how does your understanding of place drive your work? I find that place, a lot of people seem to know what place is. You talk about place and they all think, oh, yeah, I know what that means. Um, Quite often it's overlaid with this idea of community. Mm. So for me, once I started to really think about place, I felt there is a lot of scope to, again, look critically at what it actually is and how it actually works. And the more I look at place, the more fluid the idea of place actually becomes. So it's interesting because it sounds so solid, you know, the, yeah, place, yeah, yeah. the place where I come from, the place where I go to. But I really think it's not. So for me, place is becoming more and more open. And it's constantly recreated by the people, by what lives, what is, what comes to a place and then moves out of a place. So it's really interesting. It's a really interesting conceptual um, idea for me to play with right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to talk to you about some of the big ideas that you are playing with at the moment. And some of the stuff you just talked about relates to this idea of new materialism. So I know you began to use new materialism quite a lot in your own work. I mean, can you just explain what you've gained from these ideas? How does new materialism help you make sense of your own work? I came across Jane Bennett. She wrote a book, I think it was 2010. It's called Vibrant Matter. And I just really liked the book. I liked how it looked. I liked what it picked up. And it was unusual at that point in time. I wasn't aware of a lot of people in education thinking about matter. 
um, as something that can be vibrant. So it really intrigued me and it hasn't let go of me since then. So how, how does she argue that vi- matter can be vibrant? It sounds like an intriguing concept. Well, she uses she uses electricity as an example, uh-huh. and I know very little about electricity. <laughs> so I just read it and I thought, oh, wow, it really seems very lively, just the way she describes it. And of course, it makes perfect sense. But I think this idea of meta being ignored for so long in education is really it says something about our own ways of looking at the world and Mm. understanding the world. And so bringing matter into the way we start to think about educational problems is just really interesting. So can you give us an example of matter or even vibrant matter in a kind of early childhood setting? Um, I've been playing with this idea of plastic, plastic toys, plastic chairs Mm. in uh, early child care centres because sometimes you walk into a place and it's just there's nothing but plastic. And so when I started to play with this idea of vibrant matter, I started to think about the difference between a wooden chair, a wooden table, and a plastic table and a plastic chair. And um, I did some research in an Auckland early childcare centre, and their philosophy was they wanted to actually keep tables. They did not want to replace them. So they had very old, grubby-looking tables yeah, and yeah. chairs, wooden. Quite often there would be scribbling on it, writing on it. And they started to talk about the importance of this furniture to other children because they could see that their siblings had been there and their siblings had left traces in the wood. So this piece of furniture, which which looks quite unlively and quite dead, actually became quite lively once the children started to trace histories that were scribbled into the into the wood. Yeah, and the dirt and the detritus and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, the second thing that you also uh, picked up on reading through your CV is this whole idea of post-qualitative thinking, which is another kind of big idea as well. I mean, I'm really interested in how that's taking hold because I hear people talking about it all the time. But I mean, how is it actually shaping your own thinking or your approach to methodology? Well, at the moment, we're working with a childcare centre in the middle of Melbourne, and we're taking those post-qualitative ideas into the way in which we do research with them. And I think the big idea behind this is it's not that there is no data, it's not that there is no evidence, but so much of how we perceive the world, how we perceive what's an important event goes unnoticed. So Mm. for me, this post-qualitative turn really is um, about paying attention to the way in which I start to perceive things as important and then paying attention to how they materialize in my own work all of a sudden because I see them. So it's not so much a new thing for me. It's more another way of thinking about the interrelationship between myself as a researcher, the world, what I think is important, what all of a sudden appears as important. Um, And I notice things that I haven't noticed before. We had this lovely example of, um, so it's a bush kinder in the city. So the teachers take the children out and go for long walks. And there was a little girl who all of a sudden seemed to walk really, really slowly. And quite often as teachers, they get worried and they say, come on, catch up, run ahead now. But the researcher who was there, because she had time, she just stayed behind. And when she looked at her data afterwards, she thought this was a slow motion button. Did she hit a slow motion button in the recording? But she didn't. The girl was just walking really, really slowly. So this is something that would go unnoticed normally. Mm. But because we are starting to look really carefully at those moments where things don't seem to make an awful lot of sense, we started to question what was going on. And so when we went to the girl and had a conversation with her afterwards, she said, I did that because we talked about the bats who sleep upstairs in the trees. And I did not want to disturb them. (laughs) 
So I, I was walking really, really carefully and slowly because of the sleeping bats. Mm. And I thought that was remarkable because the bats are invisible. Um, it's only because they talked about it at some point in time, maybe a week before they actually went for a walk. The girl's quite young. She was four or five. It's not something that you expect to see. But because of this awareness that we brought to data and what data is and how data comes to matter, we were able to follow up on this and actually see a really remarkable story emerging about I really learning. I like this idea of these fleeting moments that otherwise go unnoticed and kind of working around the edges and thinking about things that people don't normally think about in research. It's a really interesting way of approaching things. And I guess particularly in the early years settings where imagination and creativity are big issues, it's a really interesting way to actually kind of bring your own research into these settings. Now, I mean, I'm always fascinated by what people are up to at this very moment. So, I mean, we've talked about stuff that you've been doing over the last five, ten years. What are you reading at the moment? What are you currently actually kind of getting you excited? <laughs> I'm reading Donna Haraway, and I know that lots of people are reading her, but I just love that she is political, she is creative. Uh, she does pose qualitative without even naming it mm. as such. She doesn't claim it. It's just part of how she works. She's been doing this work for a long time, and and she really talks about finding stories that matter at this point in time. And that's kind of the data. So, I mean, the flip side of all this reading of Haraway is the stuff that you're writing. I'm really interested. What are you actually writing at the moment? How's it going? Um, I'm writing a piece about uh, children who look at the moon, who play with slaters, who have big celebrations on a tree stump outside in their childcare centre. And I'm trying to bring all of this together in some coherent form. And that's always a big challenge. So writing with Haraway also means uh, taking some risks mm. in, in how we write up research. And I'm using her idea of tentacular becoming um, to kind of pull things that don't seem to belong together together into something that makes sense. So was this an incident that you saw in a kind of childhood center that you were researching, these kids on this stump, and it's just a kind of vignette and you're using it to explore kind of wider issues? Yeah, I think in a way you could call it vignettes. So it's again, it's not something new. It's really mm. just about framing it slightly differently and then changing the meaning that it makes together through this different frame. So I can imagine seeing that is a very powerful thing, being witness to it. How do you write about it? How do you describe kids looking at the moon or playing with wood lice? It's yeah, a... and how do you make sense of it as a learning moment? Because mm. in the end, that's what education is all about. So I guess it's about uh, just changing perception of what's important in daily encounters in early childhood. Mm. So in this particular childcare center, they have lots of um, immigrant children. English as a second language. So having a child talking about the moon as a poetic moment made me think that this child may have seen the moon in her homeland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it creates this very meaningful learning moment for her to, you know, reconnect with the moon in the middle of the day in this childcare centre. Which again is something that you wouldn't normally notice if you were going in there with 10 surveys to get filled out and an interview schedule and a very fixed notion of what research you wanted to do. It's fascinating. I'm really interested in how people actually do the craft of being an academic. So in terms of writing, I mean, do you write every day? Do you write at the weekend? Do you have a special place that you write? Do you do it on the fly? I do have a special place. I like to have my special writing place. And writing is a project for me. So it always takes a lot of time for me to get mm. into the ideas that I want to explore. And I do it through the writing. So the writing itself is actually an intense part of the research process for me. Yeah, yeah. The other thing which struck me is, I guess, do you think in German and write in English? I mean, how easy is it to write as an academic in your second or third language? I can't even tell you if I dream in German or English. <laughs> so um, I really like to write in English. Mm. Um, and sometimes when I get stuck with an idea, I think through it in German. 
gives me a bit of distance and then I come back to it. I find that very helpful, actually. Yeah. And do you write in German at all? Do you write for German audiences? No. No. That's fascinating. But um, I should. I'm, I'm planning to maybe at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, finally, what are you thinking about for the future? What are the big topics on the horizons? Are there any hot issues that you're beginning to think about for the next five, ten years as being really, really important? I like to go back to this place idea because um, I've, I've been thinking about place as this very layered entity almost. Mm. So with the um, childhood place in the middle of Melbourne, we're starting to play with this idea of thinking about what was there before. So imagining backwards and then also imagining forwards. So if we want to think about more sustainable city living, how else could the place be? And what was the place in the past? And what is this place right now? So we're thinking of bringing in some indigenous storytellers mm. together with this childcare community, uh, maybe some filmmakers, um, and really just expand on what's possible within one particular setting when you want to take this idea of place seriously and start to imagine with the children. And you've talked a lot throughout the interview about sustainability as well as an issue that runs throughout your work. And again, that's something which people are now beginning to kind of talk more forcibly about. But I mean, from my kind of very naive point of view, it's about the environmental issues. But I mean, I guess it's more complicated than that. I don't even know if sustainability is particularly meaningful at this point in time, because we've gone past sustainability, mm. I think. So it's almost post-sustainability that we're talking about now. I'm really concerned about the loss of biodiversity, which is noticeable absolutely everywhere. And so if we can now start to learn with children about how to pay more attention to who lives with us, um, who makes places their homes right now, um, who might want to move in with us in the future and who also is now missing, um, I think that's a really interesting educational exploration to do. Yeah, so using children as kind of pathfinders for the future. Yeah, as intergenerational learning. So I think mm. that's really important. Well, fantastic. It's been genuinely fascinating to hear all about your work. And thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk. It was a pleasure.